Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you're listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This episode is dedicated to wild steelhead and salmon around the world. Please take a moment to do your part and help out one of the organizations who support these fantastic creatures. The Skeena Watershed Conservation Coalition and Skeena Wild are both organizations I have personally worked with, and each of them is 100% devoted to doing what is right for our fish. Please reach out to support them in any way you can. Shannon McVale is the sort of woman you want on your team. Born and raised in northern BC, the Skeena River runs through her backyard and her bloodline, making her one of the most passionate and knowledgeable activists I've met. Shannon is the executive director for the Skeena Watershed Conservation Coalition and is at the forefront of speaking up against the latest approved LNG plant proposed to go on Lilu Island, the Skeena's estuary and Canada's most important wild salmon habitat. I met with Shannon at her home in Hazleton to learn more about the specifics and how I could help. I was born and raised in the Kispiox Valley, which in English means the hiding place. Uh, some call it God's country, but we sort of debate whether he knows where it is or not. <laughs> it's different culture up there. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, this is some of the most beautiful country in the world. And I was telling you earlier, because we're sitting in your house right now on the Skeena River. Every time I come here, I just feel something in me change a little bit. It's, it's just got a very different vibe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Skeena 
Well, first of all, this watershed is larger than Switzerland, so over 54,000 square kilometers. And it starts up in the sacred headwaters in this valley, and there's this mountain up there called Klapan Mountain. And on one side, the Stikine drains, on the other side, the Skeena, and on the back side, the Nass. So the Nass and the Skeena and all these watersheds up here have this really cool, interesting relationship. One, um, they're all born from the same valley. Two, their water changes so the Spatsy River actually flows into this lake in the headwaters called Swan Lake. And out of the, the south side of that lake runs the Skeena. So it's actually the Stikine drainage from the Spatsy River that feeds this lake, which is what feeds the headwaters of the Skeena. And that's the main stem Skeena, which is really cool. And then on places like um, the Dandachaks, there are these lakes that, depending on what the beavers do that year, that lake will either drain into the Nass or the Skeena. Are you serious? Totally serious. It's um, <laughs> it's pretty cool. And, you know, this year I think our sockeye return was even bigger than the Fraser. So the Fraser has always been the biggest uh, salmon run in, in Canada. And this year I think our sockeye returns were bigger. The Fraser River has been hit so hard with development in the estuary, with mm. fish farms, uh, in the salmon migration path. There's, I mean, there's just so many stresses. You know, when you come up along the whole Pacific uh, coast, like, you know, starting way down in the southern U.S. and you work your way up, there used to be a lot of, you know, world-class salmon and steelhead rivers. Mm-hmm. And and the health of those rivers has deteriorated significantly. And then you hit the Skeena and, and you're like, wow, this river's still got all five species of wild salmon. It has the world's largest strain of steelhead. You know, so relatively speaking, we're quite healthy Mm-hmm. and we want to keep it that way. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about you. <laughs> dun, oh, <gosh>. dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, people who don't know you, you're this like fiery, I'm not going to call you a redhead, but I'm going to go as far as to call you a ginger for sure. Yeah, age is sort of taking some of that red out. It's replaced oh, it with a lot of gray. When you walk in a room, it's like the room just shuts down or blows up. I haven't decided yet, but it's just like this energy takes over. It always has since I've known you. So uh, I just kind of want to enlighten my listener on who you are exactly. Were you born in this valley? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was born in Hazleton, which is, you know, the hospital. But um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I wasn't born in my mom's backyard, if that's what you're wondering. Um, <laughs> Although maybe, anyway. Um, Yeah, my family is six generations here, uh, over 110 years of history. And, you know, for for us white folks, uh, that's a long time in Mm -hmm. the North. And I, my family makes up a minority here. 15% of the population is not First Nations. So you, when you grow up here, you're growing up on unceded Gitsan territory. Mm-hmm. And you can't help but be influenced by the majority of the culture, which is First Nations. So, you know, uh, things are very seasonal here. Like, people are still connected to the seasons. This is the Huckleberry Month. This is the Sockeye Month. This is the, you know, this is the Chinook Month. This is the Soapberry Month. This is the Wild Mushroom Picking Month. People are still really connected to that, and and it was my great-grandparents when they settled here back in the early 1900s. It was the Gitan that helped them figure this stuff out, and there is this long history of reciprocity. You know, my family had the first tractor in the valley, so they traded things like smoked moose ribs and ooligan and herring roe for, for the tripe from their cattle or... Uh, you know, or they would plow everybody's gardens 
with that one tractor. This so my, so interesting. Yeah, my grandpa would spend like weeks plowing everybody's, rotivating everybody's gardens all over. And this is the Allen family though. Yeah. You're, you're before, so you're McVail by marriage. Yeah. But you're an Allen. But I'm an Allen. Yeah, it's, that's, that's the blood, but I got all shacked up with this hunk of burning love and changed my name. <laughs> Because <laughs> the Allens are, I mean, obviously you've got Gene Allen, who is legendary in his own right. Oh, yeah, in his own mind, yeah. uh, for sure. And ours. Yeah, I mean, growing up with a dad like Gene Allen, I remember, well, and my mom, like people, you got to understand that behind every legendary man, there was one hell of a crazy woman because she was crazy enough to marry that guy. Your mom is amazing. Joy <laughs> is, I mean, you bring a room down, your mom just scares the shit out of me straight up. <laughs> oh yeah. She, uh, <laughs> she is something else. But I mean, she married my dad. So what does that say? I don't know. Uh, she's brave. Uh, <laughs> well, they made you. Yeah. I, th- I think they wanted a boy, but <laughs> they had me and then my sister and, you know, and then tried again for my brother and then had an accident. My, you know, my youngest sister came 13 years after me. And, um, anyway, Kaylee, you're not an accident. We all love you. We're grateful <laughs> for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm really, I'm really grateful for the history that my family has here, you know, cause they were the ones who connected me to land. I mean, our vacations were spent, you know, 21 day pack trips in the mountains or, you know, every weekend we'd go up to my mom's dad's place, Grant Nash, uh, and we'd all float the river, all my aunts and uncles and cousins, and we'd float the river. And it was just, it was just a part of growing up here. The river was, was what brought family together and we would catch fish. And, you know, I remember when it was my grandfather who taught me how to fly fish, Grant Nash. Oh, okay, cool. And I remember when I first started getting my cast, you know, you got that rhythm down, you know, when your loops are getting tight and we were in, we were in a boat on one of the twin lakes in the upper Valley and I was casting and it was feeling so good. And I was casting farther and my loops were getting way out there. And grandfather had this way of, you know, just bringing you back to what you're actually there for. And he would, you know, he would just, he wouldn't even look up. He would just have his fly out in the water and he'd say, well, honey, I don't think there's too many flying fish out there today. You want to catch a fish, you got to put your fly in the water. And right. I was just like, right, I know, but I just I got this rhythm and it feels so good. Anyway, so he, he really was the one who connected us in a big way because he brought the family together every weekend. And then my dad's dad, Marty Allen, he lived on some of the greatest fishing spots in the river. So, you know, we'd go diving for lures. We never had to buy any fishing tackle. because This is on the Kispiox. On the Kispiox, yeah. And, um, you know, and we'd see fishermen. Like, some of those fishermen were like family. My godfather, actually, Tom Storm from Montana, he became my godfather because he was this guy who came up fishing and hunting every fall. And he would stay for like a month and a half. And he ended up becoming my godfather. And, I mean, people who come up and uh, every year to celebrate what it means to be here and fish on this river have you know they've become like members of the community and we miss them when they're when they're gone but when they're here it's like you know it's like six weeks of partying oh god I know I'm getting out of it right now I'm on my (laughs) week six and I am so tired and my liver really hurts (laughs) oh one year we're gonna make we're gonna make a documentary and we're gonna call it steelheader wives because all the fishing guides around here, right? They're all married. They have families, yes. but then their families don't see them for like 10 weeks. Let me talk to you a little bit about you then and where you went from high school. Because you graduated high school mm-hmm. and you graduated high school here. No, actually. I went, I went to high school here from kindergarten to grade 10 and then 
I like I'm a six footer, but I played basketball and the high school here that year um, didn't offer chem or physics 12. And I really wanted to go into the sciences. So, okay. And they didn't have a senior girls basketball team, which is unfortunate because we have a history of whooping some ass here with basketball. Uh, So I moved to Vanderhoof and went to school there for two years. It was quite the experience. I really missed home. And then I went to college. Okay. In uh, Vanderhoof? No, I went to, I got recruited for basketball by Grand Prairie Regional College. And I went up north and the coach told us, he's like, he said, we, this is going to be a building year because you're all rookies, but next year we're going to rock. And we did. We went undefeated. Wow. And uh, we brought home the bronze and nationals. And then I played a few more years in Calgary for the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology and lived in Calgary for a while, which is where I met Steve. We were both whitewater rafting guides on the Upper Red Deer River. Oh, okay. And we took our training there together, and I <laughs> sort of took. Um, anyway, <laughs> let's not talk about you that. You churned up his water, did you? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, well, what did the what did his boss say? Because they have Dig a hot deep tub McVail. there. <laughs> Sorry, there's so many things that you could say. It's so bad. <laughs> I know. He said... That we thought we were pretty sneaky about, you know, making out in the hot tub. <laughs> and his boss came out the next day, and you know we're all standing around doing our swift water rescue training. And Ryan Ryan Thompson is his name, and he he you know nobody's saying nothing. And like half hour into the morning, he said, "All right, we're going to need two people to take the rafts down to, you know, this certain point so we can do some different scenarios, rescue scenarios." Hey, Steve, why don't you and Shannon take one of the rafts down? We know you can handle her in the hot water. Let's see how you do in the cold. And it was like, oh, my God. And the rest is history. We've been together 16 years now and and two hooligans, which is interesting because I was never going to get married and never going to have kids. And here I am. Here you are. Cannon applesauce. and That's exactly what's happening Making pumpkin pie. It's fantastic. Is this apple cider? I have any alcohol content in it, actually. No. (laughs) You're safe. Kids are drinking it. Okay, good stuff. So, okay, so now what did you take then in in college besides um, basketball? What did you, what were you really studying? Uh, I took chemical technology, actually, which is just a glorified lab rat. You learn all this great stuff about chemistry and you learn how to do all these really cool and amazing things, which I had thought one day, you know, I'm going to be out collecting soil samples and water samples and air samples, which is which is really not what you do. You stay in a lab. Other people bring you the samples. And so when I did my practicum, they would bring in like a thousand water samples and I would have to test them all like Mm. 10 times, each one in this machine and then this machine. And then, you know, it was, anyway, I've never worked a single day (laughs) in that that field, in that field. So what did you do after you graduated college? Did you come back here? Did you stay? No, you stayed in Calgary. I stayed in Calgary for a bit. Yeah. Long story short, I needed to get out of the city and I needed to get back to Kispiox. Like I'm a Kispiox kid. Yeah. And all you want to do when you grow up here is get out of this shithole, right? Because everybody knows what you do. I could never get away with anything. No. (laughs) So I needed to go to the city and, you know, see the bright lights and just be an asshole, I guess, ultimately, you know. Did you do a good job of being an asshole? I sure did. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think I got an A plus there. After I sort of got that out of my system, uh, I had met Steve and I was working three jobs. Okay. And he, he's a welder. And I looked at his paycheck, and he was having more deducted in a week than I was grossing in a month. And I was like, hmm, welding, eh? I could weld, you know. So I enrolled at SATE again, but this time for welding to be a welder. Really? Yeah, and I became, uh, I was a first and second year. Anyway, I became a welder. 
And I... (laughs) So cool. (laughs) And I started welding for uh, this crazy Frenchman uh, who did the stainless steel installations for Cargill meat packers. Okay. So a slaughterhouse. I actually did stainless steel welding for this slaughterhouse and I didn't eat beef for a very long time. And you know when people tell you that you don't know what's in bologna and wieners? Like, believe them. Okay. It's don't ever eat that stuff. Ever. <laughs> I've seen it. Ooh, I had that for dinner last night. Ew. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, good to know. Yeah. Okay, so you're a welder. He's a welder. Mm-hmm. I know there's going to be an oil entrance in here somewhere. Yeah, so I stopped working for the Crazy Frenchman, and I started working for Henuset Pipeline Construction. Okay, as so, a welder. As a welder. I was building and repairing big pipelining equipment. So, you know, massive ditchers and side booms and dozers and backhoes and excavators, all that stuff. And long story short, I got really tired of the city. Like, I was getting road rage and nobody was doing anything to me. Got it. And when I, and I, sometimes I would go hiking in Kananaskis or, um, you know, all around Canmore and all that jazz. But the thing about hiking around there is... There's trails everywhere. We're here. Every time you go out in the wilderness, like you know that you're probably going to make some kind of cool discovery. Every yeah. Upper Skeena expedition that we've ever done, we've discovered things like arborglyphs and petroglyphs and you know ancient village sites or uh, fish pits or old pit houses. You know, we we find these these things over in in Calgary. I mean, you're running into people constantly on the trails, and uh, it wasn't special or unique or it was never our own. I couldn't handle city life anymore. It was too busy. It was too much. And I one day just went to Steve and I said, look, I really love you, but I'm moving to Kisbyox. I'm going back home and, and I hope you come with me. And that little darling, he did. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And we, (laughs) we went from having really good income and having two homes in Calgary to having no job and going and caretaking Bear Claw Lodge, which was just getting started. So they were only open at that point during fishing season. And so we gave up really good jobs. We gave up, you know, working in this big economy to move back home to make a combined income of $18,000 a year. Ooh. And, and we were never happier. Yeah, see, so we, that says a lot. Yeah, we were so happy. And we were, I mean... I did a 21-day expedition or 16-day expedition down the Stikeen. We were – yeah, anyway, it was, it was awesome and it was epic and we were super pumped to be back home and we never, ever regretted that decision. So then what happened after you got back home? When I got home, I worked for my dad a bit as a hunting guide mm. and, and, um, and so did Steve and, and as a camp cook because <laughs> there were lots of hunters who was like, I don't want to have a woman guide me. And I was like, whatever. I'll cook your food. You can guide me. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, <April>. Any day. <laughs> um, it was during the off season and I was hearing about shell, you know, Royal Dutch shell wanted to frack in the headwaters of the Skeena River. I didn't know what fracking was. All I knew was that they wanted to do oil and gas development at the headwaters of our river. And my first reaction was fucking A. Oh, like, yeah. Totally. I was like, this is going to be big money. This is great work. You know, so I started calling people and trying to find work. And they were like, no, we don't really hire locals. And I was like, wait a minute. You're going to do this massive development here and you're not going to hire locals? And they're like, well, it's a highly con- 
unconventional form of drilling for gas. Oh, well, what's that? Oh, it's, well, this is coal bed methane. You know, it's, methane is the largest component in natural gas, but it's a highly specialized form of drilling called fracturing. Anyway, long story short, I, I learned more about what fracking is, what it does, because Steve's one of the highest ticketed welders in Canada right now. Right. And, you know, and I'm like, if they're not going to hire him, like what's that's kind of, yeah, what's yeah. going on? And are you talking to the guys, are they in Alberta? Are they, yeah. okay, so you're talking to the guys in Alberta. In Alberta, And yeah. they don't hire locals. And they don't hire locals because it's a highly specialized form of unconventional drilling for natural gas. So then I talked to government and, and it was sort of Shell and the BC government who created the Skeena Watershed Conservation Coalition. And what year was all of this? Uh, 2004. Okay. So yeah. they had had three wells drilled in the headwaters of the Stikine, Skeena, and Nats in the sacred headwaters. And the Taltan had been blockading it, like these, this group of elders. And I just thought, oh yeah, people blockading development again. Don't they understand that, you know, people need jobs. What the hell? But then I started asking questions and the answers that I was getting were ridiculous to say the least. Like, oh, where else can you show me an example of where this kind of development has been done in a salmon bearing environment? Well, it hasn't. Oh, have you ever commercially produced this coal bed methane before? You know, asking Shell. No, we haven't. Oh, British Columbia. Have, has British Columbia ever commercially produced coal bed methane before? No, we haven't. Oh, so this is basically a big experiment. This is new technology, and we've learned from all the mistakes made in the past. Okay. And I'm like, all the mistakes? What mistakes are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> so then I started like researching what coal bed methane is and where else had it been done, and it turns out it had been done in Wyoming and in Montana. It, it drives real estate values down by a minimum of 20%. Uh, okay, so they have fish in Wyoming. They have fish in Montana. How how did what happened to the fish there? Oh, they all died. Oh, okay, well, this is great. <laughs> sure, bring it up to the headwaters of three of BC's greatest wild salmon bearing watersheds. That sounds super smart. So they wanted. They also wanted to do it in other parts of BC, like Fernie. And so Fernie demanded that they do uh, testing on the fish there, because uh, at that point they could just pump the wastewater the toxic wastewater directly into streams and their sort of solution to pollution was dilution. And so the community was like, wait a minute, this stuff is toxic. And they're like less than 1% of the makeup of what we put in there. It's, it's mostly all water and sand. 99% is water and sand. And when you hear that, it's like, oh, well, that's not so bad. Yeah, but it's in huge quantities. Yeah, so but when you're talking 1%? millions of gallons. <laughs> right? <laughs> and don't like, they have to legally, legally they don't have to disclose what's in no, that. No, it's considered a proprietary right or a trade secret. So they can pump whatever concoction of cancer-causing, fish-killing chemicals they want into your groundwater and, and at that point, surface water. And... And they don't have to disclose what's in there. Like people would come out with burns and, and they would go to the doctor and the doctor would say, I need to know what burnt you. And the company wouldn't disclose it. Like this, this stuff is crazy. And, it, and it, it blew my mind. People lighting their tap water on fire, people's wells exploding, ground, um, uh, wells drying up. Because in order to get the gas off of the coal, you ha it's usually held in there by uh, water. Mo and, and you hear about these very rare, very, very rare occurrences where there isn't water on top of the coal seam with the gas. And most of them need to be, are these aquifers that need, you need to pump all the water out of them. Okay. And in some cases, that water is brackish or has lots of cadmium or mercury, all these, you know, nasty little things. 
And, and what happens is, you know, groundwater and all these aquifers are interconnected. So when you suck that water out, it creates this sort of negative space. So groundwater then drops into that aquifer, this fresh water that's in our wells or that exchanges with rivers and it, it, the bottom drops out. And so hence people's wells were drying up. And then it also creates, now that the pressure has been relieved off of that coal seam, it creates this opportunity for the, the gas to desorb from the coal because that pressure is no longer there. So gas starts essentially burping off the coal. And now that the water isn't there to keep it in place anymore, it bubbles up and all of a sudden, you know, is coming into wells or people's drinking water. And you're like, well, it's just gas. It evaporates until, you know, you have a spark in your house. Like this is, I mean, I'm sure you, people have seen the YouTube videos of people lighting their tap water on fire. Yeah. And of course the argument is always, oh, that, because wasn't there a documentary about it and it received incredible criticism because... I don't know, it was biased or it was exaggerated. Josh Fox, Gasland. I mean, he just yeah. went to people's homes and he just had them say, you know, what is this, since this industry has come to town, what has it been like for you? Right. And and people just shared their stories. Okay. So, but was there any merit to any of the criticism behind it? Absolutely. I mean, okay. uh, what what the companies would say is, we'll prove that people couldn't light their tap water on fire before. Oh, okay. You know, shit like that. And so there, there are ways to do uh, baseline testing, something called isotopic fingerprinting and where you can actually see is is the gas that they targeted is that's what's coming up through my taps right now and lots of companies just they, they simply just don't do it they can't tell where the methane has migrated and that's a major problem with um with any fracking is that you can't actually you can't actually tell where the gas is going to go so it, it you know it takes a path of least resistance and once you suck all that water out that gas can go anywhere. And then to encourage the gas to come out even quicker, they do something called fracking, which is, you know, where they blow the shit up out of all the coal underground, and, you know, which now is causing earthquakes all over, <laughs> massive earthquakes. And the industry has said, yes, we recognize we're causing earthquakes. But you know what? They're not really big, big earthquakes. So they sort of look at it as just a part of business now. I'll be honest. I'm a little biased, obviously, because you and I work together to – bring public awareness of the sacred headwaters issue. And mm-hmm. so I, I definitely do have an opinion on it. Uh, we're very much on the same page here, but I was wondering if you could just kind of summarize it for the listeners so that they mm-hmm. can just kind of, cause we're not going to talk, we're not here right now to talk about sacred headwaters because technically we beat those guys out of here Yeah. Uh, for now, but we are here to talk about the LNG uh, proposal that mm-hmm. just went down. And I mm-hmm. just kind of want to give people a feel for what, how, and why you went to battle with a sacred headwaters issue and with Shell. Mm-hmm. And then I want to go into LNG. We, we essentially just wanted people to know what the risks were. Yeah. And so we went to the people that we know. We went to the guide outfitters. We went to the First Nations. We went to the rod and gun clubs, the chambers of commerce. And we said, you know, we have some concerns. Here are 10 questions that we think should be answered that haven't been answered. Um, you know, it was basically the company and the BC government were asking the people who live here to take all of the risks. We weren't going to get the jobs, so we didn't get the economic rewards. If you guys could have gotten the jobs, would you have been more supportive of it? No, I mean, in the end, no, because it would have wiped out our fish. Like, it, like there, was, there were several assessments done on how would this impact salmon, and the results were the best-case scenario is that they were inconclusive, there was like a 50-50 chance they were going to really mess up our fish. And this is the headwaters of the Skeena, right? So they were going to surface discharge 
their wastewater right into the Skeena River. I think some people likely would have supported it had more employment been offered, but that wasn't the case. And as it stood, everybody, every chamber of commerce, every city and town council, every band council, every First Nation publicly opposed this development. And by the time the Taltan were done with Shell, Shell voluntarily pulled up stakes and left. And they didn't get any money for it either. I mean, they, they, they sort of did get a trade-off. Uh, they had to build a water treatment facility in northeast BC from all the <laughs> toxic wastewater they were producing. So the BC government essentially gave them a tax break on the royalties they were paying off their fracking wells in northeast BC to the tune of $21 million, which Shell then had to put in into a water treatment facility for all that toxic wastewater. Now, that wasn't that long ago. I remember getting the call yeah. saying that they were out. It was a huge celebration in my house. Yeah, there was a moratorium put in in 2008, and then the official announcement came December of 2012. And Shell not only pulled up stakes and left, uh, they made it mandatory that oil and gas could never be developed in the sacred headwaters again. Okay, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So fast forward, why are we sitting here now? Let's talk about what's happening with this LNG proposal. Oh, great question. Uh, and can you just explain a little bit about what the Skeena Watershed Conservation Coalition, mm-hmm. you're the executive director? Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. Well, we, we came together as a result of Shell and uh, and also this industrial haul road that they wanted to put through uh, the upper Skeena and Kispiox Valley, um, which was essentially a mining connector road um, and so we, we had sort of dealt with that as well, but I was, I was a volunteer. And so I just got together with my community and said, we need a way to deal with this. Uh, let's get together. And, and we formed Skeena Watershed Conservation Coalition. Is it a non-for-profit? Yeah, it's a non-profit society. We worked out of our kitchens and living rooms and we were all volunteers until I think 2009. Uh, so, so the first five or six years, it was just a volunteer organization. And then, um, Allie Howard decided to swim the whole freaking Skeena from the sacred headwaters to the Pacific Ocean. And we had to pay some people honorariums. So we paid one person an honorarium, which is a way of saying we want you to work for us, but we're not going to really pay you. We're going right. to kind of give you 500 bucks a month yeah. to work 80 hours a week. Oh, what's that documentary called? It's called Awakening the Skeena. I'll put a link up for it. Yeah, yeah. She, she rocked it for us. She brought people to the river again. Like the river used to be the highway. The stern wheelers would come up. It was the trade routes. It was the canoes. And in the winter, it was people on skis or with sled dogs or snowshoes. Like, it was our main method of transportation. Coming up, Shannon dives into the LNG specifics. Please take a moment to click on the links on this podcast to be directed to how you can help. What is happening right now here with the LNG proposal? Ground zero. Ground me. zero. Okay. They're proposing one of the biggest projects in Canada, if if not the biggest project in Canada, right smack dab in the middle of our estuary. Who is they? Pacific Northwest LNG, which is a consortium of a number of shareholders. That The main investor is Petronas out of Malaysia. Okay. And LNG stands for? Liquefied Liquid. Natural Gas. Perfect. Yeah. And what is liquefied natural gas? So it's gas that comes from fracking. So they'll frack in Northeast BC. Oh, great. We know how fantastic fracking is. Yeah. Now. It's, you know... We brought uh, Chief Liz Logan from Treaty 8 First Nation, who, is, who was representing at that time the, um, the various First Nations who would be impacted by fracking. And we brought her to our community to say, you know, what, what is this really all about? Your communities seem to have made a ton of money. That's what we're hearing from industry and government. 
what can you tell us? And she was very careful about how she spoke because she didn't want to tell anybody what to do. And all she said was, uh, well, we've lost the ability to drink our own water. So now fresh water is piped in and it's the companies who pipe it in. So we have a water pipeline coming to our communities because we can't drink our own water. The wild game have tumors and green livers and things are really contaminated. Uh, We no longer have the ability to harvest our own berries because they're toxic. Uh, So much of our land has just been dissected by fracking. And people are really unhealthy. We're seeing birth defects in children. We're seeing uh, extremely high cancer rates. They're experiencing earthquakes. And now with the LNG industry coming here through our watershed, and right smack dab in the middle of our estuary, it's a big problem. So they want to put something bigger than uh, an oil sands project, bigger than a coal power plant, that is going to puke out more pollution than an oil sands project or than a coal power plant, right where 100% of all of our salmon and steelhead go. So it's this place called Lilu Island and Flora Banks, which is interesting because that's where Ali finished her swim, right? It was right in the Skeena estuary. God, so we're basically picking up where we left off. Yeah, so we had no idea back in 09 that this is what we were going to be dealing with. And we always think of our watershed as the inland, you know, where the fish spawn, where the baby fish are born, where they, you know, the little eggs, you know, the fish start poking their heads out of the gravel in like the beginning of May. And then we don't realize that the most important part of our watershed is the estuary. Right. And it's actually the halfway point for the salmon. Like we always think, you know, the salmon are hitting the river. They're starting their journey. They're only halfway through their journey. Yeah. So they, they're reared for a year in the freshwater in the rivers. And then when they're a year old, they all do this big invisible migration out in the spring. And they all head out to the estuary. 300 million to a billion juvenile salmon and, uh, and steelhead, I should add. And they all, they go out with the spring freshet. So when the water's high and muddy, if you were in a helicopter and the water was clear, all you would see would be these giant black plumes of these juvenile salmon, 300 million to a billion fish each and every year out migrate uh, from the freshwater to the ocean. And the place they stop and adjust from freshwater to saltwater is in the estuary. And the place where the overwhelming majority go is Lilu Island and Flora Bank. Which, and what's the reason for that? Why do they go there? It's, it's the eelgrass, but the scientists aren't really sure because there are other places that also has eelgrass, but the concentrations aren't nearly what they are on Flora Bank. So I was talking to one, one of the scientists who said, you know, we go, we do net poles out into Horsey or Agnew Bank or in all these different channels, you know, they get 15 fish or 120 fish. And then they go to Flora and they're getting like 1,200 fish, 1,500 fish. And it's, 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 the numbers are overwhelming. They're staggering. And uh, the Flora Bank is this ancient sediment of sand. So every time, you know, the spring freshet comes down, there's all this silt and all this really, really fertile, fertile, really fine grain sand. And Flora Bank is essentially a, an ancient, ancient sand sediment that is kept exactly in the right place by the conflicting tides, by the outgoing and incoming tides. And those ebb and flows is what holds the bank in place. Oh. So it's really, I mean, we're learning so much about the estuary, things we never, that we never knew before, except, you know, in 1973, the, the Ministry of Fisheries and Oceans, which is now the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, did a report and said that Flora Bank and Lilu Island were so critical and so important to salmon and it was such a sensitive habitat 
that they weren't allowed to put in a small port there and advised that no industrial development ever take place there. And that was in 73. That was 43 years ago. They were that responsible back then. No, (laughs) we didn't have environmental assessments. Then the salmon stocks were in much better shape than they are now. And here we are 43 years later and the approval by our federal government to put in the single biggest industrial structure in Canada, right in that exact spot. Okay, so I mean, for so long we all thought, especially with this change of government, that it was never going to go through. Tell me what is going on right now. What the hell's happening? I don't understand. I don't know, April. I am so disappointed in our Prime Minister and our Minister of Environment, Catherine McKenna. I mean, I he got me. He totally did. Maybe we'll backtrack just a little bit. Can mm-hmm. you just explain? So they want to frack in Northeast BC. They want to build a pipeline all the way through uh, that will cross over a thousand fish-bearing streams. They want to burrow the pipeline under the Skeena. They're going to parallel the Babine. They're going to burrow under the Kispiox. They're going to go down the Nass and then have basically an ocean pipeline from the mouth of the Nass to the mouth of the Skeena where this terminal is going to be. The terminal itself, like I said, is one of the biggest industrial projects in Canada. The amount of emissions that it will put out will make them the single largest source emitter of greenhouse gas emissions in Canada. This is, this is the biggest carbon polluter in Canada. They have capped their emissions now from 5.2 megatons to 4.3. So taking out almost a million megatons. To put things into perspective, when you consider the fracking and the pipeline and the terminal, uh, by the year 2050, this terminal at minimum will be producing 10 megatons of greenhouse gas emissions. BC's climate targets for 2050 are 13 megatons. So you know, and then there's there are three other LNG terminals approved, and this is something I think people really miss. They say we need this for the we need this for the jobs, we need this for the economy. Well, there are three other terminals approved. Their pipelines are approved. Their fracking field, you know, the companies they've already been bought. They have all their permits. I mean, these guys are they're ready to go. They're just waiting for the economics to change. So, if all four of these projects move forward, that's over 25 megatons of pollution every year. But how's that legal? That's a great question. Our goal is to hit 13 megatons. This is double that just with the LNG industry. So that means all you other economies, all you other industries, sucks to be you because you can't. I mean, you can't even fart with those kinds of (laughs) (laughs) No farming, no transportation, no, none of that because we're doubling our goal simply with LNG. And that's a bit ass backwards. You know, and, and Trudeau, he's double speaking. This is what really pisses me off. And I'm sorry, I get emotional about this stuff because they betrayed us so hardcore. They led us to believe that they were going to make good decisions. They wrote it in their freaking mandate letters to all the ministers. And then they turn around and they come, do the exact opposite. And I think it's because I'm small town. I think that's my issue is I'm a small town northern girl. So I can't even imagine how somebody can commit and promise publicly so that the whole international community hears you and then you backtrack and you do a complete about face and you lie. In our community, you would never survive. You wouldn't last here. If you're the person who always lies, you're never you're not going to get a job because people aren't going to trust you. Right. You I mean and this is what it means to be you know, too small town is because when they make those, those commitments, I believed them. Do you think that being small town matters in this situation? Do you guys, I mean, 
obviously you guys, we have obviously had some sort of pull as BCers. Do you think we still have pull right now? Absolutely. So the thing about the North is, you know, if you look at our own history, we fought Shell, one of the largest companies on the planet, to the point where they voluntarily left. Yeah. Enbridge, I mean, Enbridge is, I mean, it's kind of a zombie project. <laughs> you know, it just keeps getting killed and keeps like <laughs> coming out going, but we want to. Um, yeah. <laughs> then they get shot again. And, uh, and then, you know, there were fish farms at the mouth of Skeena that you know, that will never be built, that were kicked out. Fortune Minerals was kicked out. Like, all these really bad development ideas. And and I think what people also miss is that we are a resource extraction region. It's what we do. We do it well. There's lots of that going on. There aren't, you know, you look at Bruce Jack or Bowser Mine, people are supporting that because it's a great mine. And, it, and it's employing local people. They've worked with the community. I mean, before LNG and Enbridge reared their ugly heads, we were already overwhelmed with development. Right. And so it's, you know, when people talk about jobs and the economy, and we're like, jobs for who? And then Patronus puts out this article in the Globe and Mail, our national newspaper, saying that they're going to use, their workforce is going to be 40% temporary foreign workers. Yeah. Can you go into that, please? Absolutely. So, you know, this whole jobs argument, they are going to build the major components of the terminal overseas. So a Malaysian workforce. Then they're going to barge that stuff here to be assembled by a workforce of which 40% will be temporary foreign workers. So when you look at the entire duration of the job, the majority of the job, like we're going to get somewhere between 1% and 5% of the jobs. Prince Rupert isn't going to collect any taxes. So that's a municipality that's closest to this development. So their hospitals, their, you know, their RCMP, ambulance service, schools, all that stuff are going to need to increase to support something of this scale. Yet they have no tax base for it because the the project itself is off municipal land. And then the nice tax re- regime that Christy Clark negotiated, which she promised us 7%, and then it was 3.5, and now it's 1%. And we, and we only get that once the, commu- once the project has paid off its capital investment, <laughs> you know, which is, which is massive. And then the company owns the fracking company, the pipeline, as well as the terminal. So they essentially the pipeline company and the fracking company bill them at cost. So there's no profit made, therefore no taxes collected. So it's, it's a shell game. It's ridiculous. It's the economics don't work. The environment piece doesn't work. The fishery stuff sure as shit doesn't work. And then you go down to the First Nations. And we're hearing, and we're hearing this at the federal level that First Nations have signed on. And to that, I call bullshit. So the provincial government has held band councils hostage. It's the, it's the government that funds band councils who have to supply housing and things like water and sewer treatment and snow removal and child services, like all these different services that, that you know, bands need. And they get funding from various sources and most notably from the government. The government actually came into the community of Morristown and said to the band council, well, if you don't sign with this pipeline and with this project, we don't know where the money's going to come from to support the children in your community. <laughs> so the chiefs got together, they kicked out the government and, you know, said shame on you for holding our community and our children hostage to try to get us to sign with this. And that's, you know, I haven't met a person yet who has signed with the development who actually wants a pipeline or a terminal on their traditional territory. 
They're signing because they're tired of being impoverished. Yeah. And they get held hostage by these by these industries who come in and, and, and are shoveling money out of the back of their pickups, trying, you know, blood money, bribe money. That's what's happening. And then the hereditary chiefs. So the band councils are signing because they're, you know, they're the ones that the government can really put their boot on their throat and cut them off until they agree to sign. But the hereditary chiefs who will not be bought or bullied or bribed, it's their territories that are going to be uh, impacted. So the band councils have jurisdiction on the reserve. Okay. The hereditary chiefs have constitutionally protected governance over their traditional territories. The BC government knows this. The federal government knows this. And they've chosen to ignore it. And maybe that was their way of never allowing the project to go forward. But where that makes me upset is it's, in the end, the taxpayers have to pay for the government, the government's mismanagement of consulting with First Nations. So in the case of um, Fortune Minerals in the Headwaters, who wanted to build a cold mine, the company had to be bought out for $18 million. And it was a crown corporation that bought it. Uh, but there's all these examples, you know, when the government fails to consult, even though they're told repeatedly throughout the process, which they've been told repeatedly throughout this process, you have not consulted with the hereditary chiefs. Right. You know that you need to, and you know that this is going to wind up in the courts, and you know that in the end, you're going to need to pay. And it's going to reverse this decision. So why would you make such a poor decision to begin with? And maybe it was just simply to show that they're open for development that they didn't really want. But they put a lot of stress and grief on the people who live here. Yeah, big time. I mean, it's been a huge amount of stress, actually. Massive. It's, I mean, this industry has come in and it has divided communities in a way that we haven't really seen before. It does on my road, even. I mean, my phone blew up when this decision came through this was last week. And, uh, I mean, even the road I live on, I mean, there's only like five of us there. And I, I've got to be careful inviting company over when I have certain neighbors over because... You know, there's some of them who the number one thing they want to say is, well, economy, economy, economy. And then I'm sitting there going, compromise, compromise, compromise. And they think I'm a hippie. Quote, actually. Yeah. I think it's cute <laughs> that I'm a hippie. But, um, <laughs> oh, yeah. but, you know, talk to me about compromise. You obviously are an intelligent woman who knows how to, <laughs> she laughs, to compromise though, right? Like, does it have to go on Lilu? Can it go somewhere else? Well, there's a couple things with that. So number one, wild salmon in the Skeena the, you know, a low estimate of what the salmon bring to our economy from commercial and sport fishing. And with a slight, you know, well, and we eat some too. So let's throw a little bit of that in there is $110 million a year. Wild mushrooms, uh, that we know is about $21 million a year guide outfitting 28 million. That's only in the upper skein tourism in Northern BC is a billion dollar industry, right? These are economies that they are asking us to risk. Uh, you know, the wild salmon alone, every nine years, it's a billion bucks just for the Skeena. And those are local jobs. That's local money. That's money that feeds us right here. And our watershed, even though we're, you know, we're almost, we're bigger in Switzerland, there's maybe 65, 70,000 people that live here. So $110 million a year is big bucks here. In forestry's heyday in this watershed, it brought in about 140 million a year. So wild Skeena salmon are a major economic driver here and the only thing they need is a healthy watershed and they sure shit need a healthy estuary because that's where they go twice in their life cycle when they are at their most sensitive time in their in their life cycle when they're converting from freshwater to saltwater and again from saltwater to freshwater 
This is where they find food is on Flora Bank. Right. It's where they escape predators. It's where they adjust from flow current to tidal currents. This is the single most critical place for salmon. And all of the science, overwhelming mountain of peer-reviewed science states, you cannot put this project here. You are going to hurt the fish in a massive way. Well, let's talk about what could go wrong. I'm going to read you something that I had on my phone yesterday because I posted the video from the Wild Salmon Center. This is, obviously, I'm always up for criticism every time I try to post anything that's forward thinking. Because <laughs> <laughs> what do I know? I'm just a fly fishing girl. But I just, this one was interesting. The Trans Mountain Pipeline has been delivering oil from Alberta to the coast of Vancouver along many salmon rivers for over 50 years without any major spills. This post is just environmental propaganda. Well, that's another thing I got to call bullshit on. <laughs> so Trans Mountain has actually had uh, 69 spills in their history of that pipeline. And that's, that's posted right on their own website. Uh, since 2005, they've had... 13 spills with more than 5,600 barrels of crude oil spilling all over. I think one of the ones that would be most notable was the one in 2007. That was a big gusher that coated all the houses in Burnaby's Westridge community. Uh, I mean, that's right where people were living. So, you know, forget the impacts to rivers and streams. I mean, that impacted people right in their homes uh, and drained into the Burrard Inlet. So, uh, there, you know, this is the thing that I have the problem with, with the environmental community and the super pro oil community is the oil industry wants to put a halo on their development and the environmental industry wants to put, you know, devil's horns on it. And neither of those things are accurate, right? There's, you know, some projects are more to the, towards the devil's horns and some are more towards the halo and people are unwilling to have very real conversations about what development do we want uh, and what are the impacts actually going to be? And and now and and you know with this recent Pacific Northwest LNG approval, science was completely removed from that decision. Because if you were to stand with science, there is no way in hell that project could ever, ever be approved. And when Catherine McKenna stands up there and talks about the science and ancestral knowledge, you know it's it's one of those moments where I shake my head and I just ancestral knowledge really. That was a decision-making factor. Show me that ancestral knowledge. And it just, you know, and then and the, and the science, like the, the science was overwhelming. There were over 90 international scientists, uh, climate experts, including NASA, who said, you cannot build this project. You know, and then you hear, oh, well, it's going to clean up the air in China. Sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, they said, well, we can improve it because it's going to clean the air in China. This is a transition fuel. And all of these experts are saying, are you freaking kidding me? This is not, the, I mean, show me one legal document that says that this gas is going to replace coal. How do we know that it's not going to add to the coal? And in some cases, David Hughes, who, is, um, who worked for the Geological Survey for Canada for more than three decades, he's the guy that the government would go to to estimate gas reserves and impacts and all that stuff. And he's saying, one, we don't have the gas supply for this industry. By mid-2020s, we're going to have to start importing gas just for domestic use, even without the LNG industry. If we build one of these terminals, we're going to have to import even more. You want to develop the natural gas industry in Canada? We need it for Canada, for Canadians. It's going to drive our prices through the roof once we start exporting this stuff. And then, you know, there's the 135-plus salmon scientists 
who said, look, this process is flawed and it isn't actually even reviewing good science. The only science that the decision was based on was the science that was bought and paid for by the proponent. So that raises a bunch of questions. I mean, some of the scientists who signed that letter about the flawed process are scientists who are on the government payroll right now, like people who work for the Ministry of Environment for the BC government. The people who head up the Ministry of Environment office in Smithers signed that document. The former head of Habitat from the Department of Fisheries and Oceans signed that letter. You know, like this is when your own scientists are telling you this is wrong. You should probably be listening. I mean, do you think that they are approving it so that they can then come at us with something that's half the size? or? Well, I mean, they've already approved those. So those are the three other projects, right? Chevron, uh, who has Kitimat LNG. Shell, who has LNG Canada. So those are both in Kitimat. And then Wood Fiber down in Howe Sound. And those projects, some of them have 40% less emissions than Patronus because they're using better technology. Like our government didn't even ask them to use better technology. But it just doesn't make sense. Like something doesn't seem right. There's something missing, right? <laughs> exactly. There has to be. I there, I, there's no way that they can approve. They announced a carbon tax. Right? Oh, we're going to tax these guys. Well, BC has already had a carbon tax. So Patronus is going to have to pay around $250, $260 million per year in carbon tax, which, if the economics are right, is just the cost of doing business. This is, this is going to cost them $36 billion to build. I mean, there's obviously something in it for them if they're willing to put so much money down. Politics. That's what this is. This is just politics. This wasn't a decision made on science. This wasn't a decision made about communities or First Nations or evidence-based decision-making. This decision was made because of politics. Have you heard a single argument yet that makes sense? Like being somebody who sits in the middle and who really tries to look for the compromise, have you heard somebody come to bat with an argument that actually has some sort of merit or justification? Nothing that makes sense from a science or policy perspective. The only arguments that I'm hearing are political. Okay. Uh, what else can go wrong? What else do I need to know about? Uh, so the with the emissions that's going to pump out all this nasty stuff, it's so weird that in 2016 we're talking about the impacts of acid rain. But they could use the best technology, you know, scrubbers on their smokestacks, all of that stuff, we will still have acid rain. We will have acid rain in the estuary of the Skeena. And acidification of the ocean is a major, major problem. Air quality, I mean, this is going to be the biggest polluter in Canada. And what about the communities who live in that airshed? I mean, is that where you'd want your kids growing up? No, not at all. And I think what's so hard for me is, I mean, living here now, and granted, I've only been living here for half the year, for four years. I mean, I've been coming up here longer, but in living here and actually feeling like part of the community and walking down the road and actually knowing almost everybody, to be totally honest with you, in Smithers, it's really cool. Or to call, you know, like call the plumbing place and they're like, they can hear my voice and be like, hey, April, I mean, I really feel like I'm part of a community. I see the people who stay here year round and I see the people who stay here six months a year, but I also see the people who come in for one week out of the year. And I think where my fear is, because obviously I'm a fly fishing person and I've got a fly fishing podcast and people listening right now are probably mostly fly fishers. My problem is that I feel like this could just totally turn upside down and we could lose everything and people are just going to go, oh, well, you know, and then it's on to the next best destination. And I just don't want people listening to this podcast in five, 10 years going, 
oh, what a bunch of dummies. Like we should have listened to them back then. How can I speak to, how can you, how can we speak to the people listening to this and say, look, you can't just rely on us to fight this. Like you actually have to step up to you and you have to stop just coming here for a week and taking, like give back. It's time. And I know that's ruthless and bold and it pisses people off. I obviously don't care. Like you take, (laughs) you need to give back. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just how it goes. So what do we say to really fire them up? Well, we've gotten a ton of support from the fishing community, and they have been great. I mean, you and I did that fundraiser, Flies for Fins, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago for the Sacred Headwaters, and fishermen came through, man. I mean, they they really did. And and there are some, like, our greatest major donors for our organization that keep our work happening each and every year, whether it's doing different scientific studies, uh, whether it's, you know, negotiating uh, protection mechanisms for different places in our river, replacing culverts with bridges. Uh, some of the work, you know, that, that we've done over the years have been supported by the fishing community. So, you know, you guys who have been there for all the years, God, we love you. Thank you so much. You know, for those of you who haven't stepped up, well, <laughs> next time I see you on the river. Uh... <laughs> You're going under. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, is it letters? Is it money? Is it support? Is it social media? Is it, you know, listening to this and being upset for one minute and then turning on YouTube to something else? Like, what is the answer? You better not turn on to something else. First of all, April's really hot. So you just want (laughs) to, you just want to I can't see me. That's the beauty of this podcast. I love it. Well, let me describe it here. You have to actually have like a brain to listen to this podcast, not just an eye. Oh, so these are smart fishermen. Well, if they're smart fishermen, they're already donating. And if they're not... Then they're not very smart. No, I'm kidding. Um, so all of you fishermen out there, men, women, we need you. Yeah. We need you in a really big way. And right now we have opportunities to win this shit in the courts. Mm-hmm. And if history should show you anything about the court cases that uh, the northern communities have been a part of, it'll show you that we whoop some ass. And the government is once again going to have to learn this lesson that we've repeatedly taught them, You know, which I would define as stupidity, um, you know, having to learn the same lesson over and over again. We win. We stand together when it comes to impacts to our fish. We're still connected to these fish in a, in a huge way. I, I mean, entire cultures are built around these fish. These are a major, major part, not just of who we are economically, who we are culturally, uh, what we eat, and every leaf and needle in, in the tree in the forests here, in all the trees, and all the grass, has salmon DNA, or has, has a form of nitrogen, you know, from the salmon. The reason our forests are so lush, the reason, the reason that the logging industry can thrive here is all because of salmon. So for people who come here for a week, and they go fishing, and they love it, and they think, God, what a great place, breathing clean air, seeing the clean water, and hauling one of our monster steelhead out of the river, the way that you can give back is to help us ensure that you can keep coming back and doing that every year. So we will look after our resources with your help because we need your help. Big time. Now, do I direct people to the SWCC? Do I direct them to Skeena Wild, Wild Salmon Center? Who is, I mean, who are the big players right now as far as fighting this? Well, the First Nations are the biggest player. Okay. What um, can we do to... to- make a bond there. Yeah. So you can go to skeenawild.org or which is a different organization. And ours is skeenawatershed.com. And we will, and all of our websites right now are directing people to donate to the legal campaign. So yes, I'm telling you, Shannon McPhail, executive director of Skeena Watershed Conservation Coalition. I'm telling you, don't give us money right now. I'm telling you to support the legal campaign. That is our single greatest chance at stopping this salmon killing 
Pacific Northwest LNG project. And if you do that, if you help us and we raise enough money to launch all these cases, multiple cases, we will win. How much money do we need? 100000 How much do we have? 12000 First Nations. Yes. Is the legal campaign money. Yeah. And Skeena Wild is helping fundraise. And if you need a charitable tax receipt, then you contact SkeenaWild.org. Can you think of anything that I... Oh, I have a devil's advocate question for Oh, you. yes. I like devil's. Well, it's not a fun one, but I, I like always calling out elephants and because I think that they'll actually have a really positive answer from you. If anyone were to criticize the fact that you and your husband work in the oil industry, what would your response be? Oh, I love that question. I figured you might. Yeah. Some of our, another big support network for SWCC has actually come from people in the oil sands. I mean, you look at, we have some of the photos of people with our logos, our stickers, our get the shell out of the sacred headwaters bumper stickers on their welding trucks and the oil sands. I mean, they even had a film night showing the Awakening the Skeena film. Like, you know, these guys are donating and they're, and when you work up there, you know, the beast, because you're in the belly of it. So many people who work up there call it Mordor. And now there's this great organization called Iron and Earth, which is all about oil sands workers, people who work in the oil industry who want to go to something, who want to go to a better economy. So they're called Iron and Earth, and they're building uh, solar power generator plants. They're, and, they're, and they're retraining people who worked in the oil sands so that they can have these skills to do this alternate economy stuff with alternative energy, which right now is getting far more investment than the oil industry. And in BC, it is renewable energy that is employing more people than the oil and gas industry. So people keep talking about how oil and gas is this major, major employer. And, and yeah, absolutely, it plays a significant role. But it isn't even the top three. Manufacturing is bigger. Retail is bigger. Uh, real estate is bigger. Uh, services are bigger. You know, and it, it, it's like oil and gas, I think, is somewhere around 11%. Oh, whoa. And renewable right now has created more jobs than oil and gas in BC. So it's time to <laughs> get with the times and stop digging up dead dinosaurs. <laughs> Let's move into the new world. And that's where, that's where we're all heading. But anybody who works in the industry, you can't begrudge them. They're making money. It's just, you know, it's the same with some of the mining projects that have gone forward here that have been really, really contentious. You know, or people who, um, who have taken jobs working with TransCanada, the pipeline that wants to supply Patronus. You know, and you have, I have people show up at my door and say, Shannon, I'm so sorry. I needed to come tell you this first before you heard it from someone else, but I took a job doing, you know, paperwork or whatever. And, and you, can't, you can't blame folks for wanting to feed their families. And those who support and oppose the industry usually do it for the exact same reasons. They just want a future for their families. And I'm hearing that from... From everyone. It's not about a money grab. They just want a future. And I think if we develop the kind of economy that we do want, you know, that, that you know, using all these ridiculous buzzwords like sustainable community economic development, it's possible. There, you know, Dr. Um, Michael Schumann from Simon Fraser University wrote the book. His work is amazing because it really showcases how communities can build a strong, robust economy without all this outside foreign investment from Malaysia, who, by the way, Patronus, is a state-owned company by the government of Malaysia. Their prime minister is up on all kinds of fraud charges right now, and the lawyer who was taking them to task was found entombed in a barrel of cement. 
What? Prior to the court case. This, I mean, this stuff has been reported on hugely. Patronus has massive human rights issues. They did an internal audit. Somebody leaked those documents to, to a person here in the Skeena, which showed, I mean, Vancouver Sun, all these different news outlets ran this story about how they have a catastrophic management of their, of their projects worldwide. Yeah, I mean, basically is saying that there's no culture of checking on anything to make sure it's working fine. And then, you know, they got fatalities or injuries or... And if anyone wants to listen to some of the specifics on that, I actually did a podcast with Bruce Hill, and he dives into a lot of that history, uh, actually, as a lot of this was unraveling uh, last year. Shannon, is there anything that you would like to add or ask me? Oh, God. April, how do you get your eyelashes that long? They're extensions. Oh, sweet. <laughs> I have to look into that. I close my eyes and then... I wake up two hours later after my nap, and then I don't have to look in the mirror for a month. It's amazing. You swim, shower. It's the best thing in the whole world. (laughs) First world problems here. Get your eyelashes done. (laughs) Right on. Thanks, sister. I love you so much for doing this and, you know, for always fighting for our fish. Hell yeah, man. Yeah. Keep on trucking. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Powering down. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Be sure to tune in next time as I sit down with Jeff Liske to geek out on steelhead techniques and methodologies. Thanks for listening.